Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback. Please the court. My name is Caleb Kirshner, and I am a lawyer with the law firm of Sim Showers. I represent the, uh, I'm the attorney for the appellant in this case, Ella Lake Jefferson, and I would request uh, approximately four minutes of time for rebuttal. I want to thank the justices of this court for hearing my case today. My oral argument will essentially seek to address three main points. First, that the amended order in this case is the final order in which the defendant has a right to rely. Secondly, that the Court of Appeals and the Commonwealth's reliance on the minor case is a red herring. It does not apply to the facts of this case. And third, the law and justice demand that the court court rules on behalf of the appellant in this case. First, the the date of the final order is not just a Scrivener's error, as the Commonwealth suggests. It is a vital question, thus one of the reasons, quite frankly, we're here today. The date is a final, in a final order, is signed and starts the statutory clock for the defendant and dictates everything that is important to the timeliness of the appellant's appeal. In this case, the defendant brought to the trial court's attention a mistake in a timely manner within 21 days of its original final order at which time the court essentially recast the order in a timely manner, retolling the defendant's right to note his appeal. And the court has the power to do this. If this were a Scrivener's error, would your argument be the same? Um, I, uh, would my argument be the same? It, um, Justice, thank you for the question, first of all. Um, I believe that the facts of this case, and, and I don't know if we need to deal with that directly, but I believe the facts of this case essentially are that it cannot be a, a Scrivener's error because it is a vital question to this case. So if it were a Scrivener's error, would your argument be the same? Would you win this appeal? Um, that's a question I did not seek to address in this particular case because I don't believe it is a Scrivener's error in this particular case. And I do believe that this is a final order um, based upon the way that the court wrote this order, final order, and recast it on the September 15, 2017 date. Are you saying you don't know the answer to the question? Um, That's one way. Well, I I don't know if the the answer is I don't know the answer to the question. Um, I don't believe it's a Scrivener's error. I believe it's a vital question. And so um, I'm not seeking to address that particular question as to if it was a Scrivener's error, would this or would not. So you're refusing to answer the question? Well, not intentionally. your Honor, um, I, I think if it was if it was a Scrivener's error, the way the court corrected it essentially made it so that it was a recasting of that final order. And I think the appellant in this case had a reasonable right to rely upon that. If the court reviews Rule One One Colon One, Counsel, yes, how could the court have corrected it in a different manner that would not have recast it? I think the Commonwealth's argument would have been much stronger had the trial court not written 
amended sentencing order at the very when it recasted it at the very beginning of the order, and then had it not re-signed the order with a new date. So how how would it have so strike the the words amended sentencing order and don't sign it? Just have a piece of paper that changes the date. I, I don't I don't completely understand your your answer. So I think the the justice's question was essentially how could the court have done it and not recast it? Yes. <coughs> I think ultimately when you write a new when you sign sign your name to an order as Rule One One suggests and you re-sign that order, you recast it as a new order. Okay. So in other words, it would have been impossible for the court to correct the incorrect order without it being a new order under your, a new, a new final order under your theory. I think the Commonwealth's argument, and going to directly to the Justice question, is the court could have corrected it without signing it and without redating it. How? Just by eliminating the eight and putting in the seven as, as they did. Um, by hand? Well, that's how they did it in this particular case. Okay. And how would the, the world know that it was the court that did that? It's, it's a very good question. Thank you. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I guess those every once in a while. Um, Blind hog. I, I, think, I think essentially that um, in this particular case, anyway, um, the, the, judge, the judge certainly could have said, hey, I've amended this order, but he, he went further than that. Courts only speak through their orders. How Correct. would the judge have said that without an order? He could have he could have issued an, uh, a, a separate order, I suppose, Your, your Honor. Um, how could he? I guess I'm trying to understand your question in its entirety. The, I guess the question is, how could he have done that without putting his name and without putting a new date in there? Well, you you indicate that what he did causes the what he believed to be a final order to not be a final order and to be covered over by a new final order. I'm saying if a court wishes to correct an obvious error, a, something where a, a date was misstated, how would a court do that without it being a new final order? I'm not sure they can. Okay. I'm not sure they can. And the, the, the issue so I think... Would if you fixed a, a clerical order 20 years ago? Get an order 20 years ago that was never appealed, but somebody made a typo, hit the wrong key on the keyboard, and he enters a new order saying, well, obviously, it's since I didn't enter this a year before it happened, or a year after it happened, that that would run the appeal clock again. 20 years after the final conviction. No, no, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. I think, I think definitely Minor speaks to that 100%. Minor does speak to that because in that particular case, the court... Um, made that change about a month and a half after the final order was entered and new motions were presented. Those new motions were appealed and the Court of Appeal never got to those new motions because it said, listen, you didn't have the power to rehear those motions because you had lost jurisdiction of the case after 21 days. But that's a very, that's a very different question than we have here before us today. In this particular case, the court actually states this is an amended order and it re-signs the order and it redates the order. 
So you can't fix a Scrivener's error without issuing an amended order. Ipso facto, the amended order is always a new final. Therefore, it can be amended at any point in the future under the Scrivener's error statute, and it would run the clock all over again. Does that make any sense to you? No, I don't. I think after the 21 days have run, it cannot. You, you could not. It would not be an amended order in the, sen in the sense that it's being recast. So I, I think we're looking at two different things, the power of the court ultimately to fix Scrivener's error after the 21 days have passed, and the power of the court to fix certain errors within that. And if they fix certain errors within that, the question then becomes, what are the facts? And I think the facts in this case are pursuant to Rule 1.1, which states that in part, that the date of the entry of a final order shall be the date it is signed by the judge. In this particular case, we have the judge signing this particular order on, Septem on September 15th. And it seems reasonable that the appellant in this particular case reasonably relied on that because we have a new signature and a new date in this particular case during the statutory period in which the court had the power to re-sign and recast. If it is outside the 21 days, I don't, I, the court has lost jurisdiction other than very limited jurisdiction. Isn't it significant the court didn't alter the date of entry? Because on both orders it says August 28th. Does that matter? The actual date or the actual year? Actual date. Well, obviously they felt they had not made a mistake on the actual date, but they realized that. In other words, if, if the court's truly entering a new order, wouldn't you expect it to just, not just the year, but as a, because that might suggest a correction as opposed to a new order, but to um, just say September 15, 2017, enter. Well, in, in some ways I think you could say that may have been what occurred. Because right next to that final order, and if you look at, at uh, appellant's appendix number seven, that new amended order actually has the court's signature and date right next to the entry date in something that they have now relabeled amended order. Right. So the question becomes, does justice demand that a, an appellant, in this particular case, who is seeking to the right, do the right thing, he approaches the circuit court clerk's office, the judge realizes this mistake, and our argument is he recasts that order by re-signing it and redating it, in which case then the appellant files his appeal in a timely manner, which is taken to the Court of Appeals, which the Commonwealth never argued, but the Court of Appeals on its own, Sue Sponte said, oh, well, this was not filed within a timely manner, so that's why, one of the reasons we're now, here so today. Is it, is it your argument, um, um, is it your argument that once the order becomes final, if there is a clerical error, the court can correct that clerical error without changing the finality of the date? But if the court corrects the clerical order before it becomes final, it automatically changes the date. Is that your argument? It is not my position that it automatically does. I think there is a way, and I think that was uh, Justice Smith's previous question, is when you change it, does it automatically recast it as a new order if it's done within the statutory period? Uh, that's a question that I've never seen um, resolved in the law. I do think it is somewhat fact-sensitive. And in this case, I think it is largely fact-sensitive given what the trial court did in this particular case when he labeled it an amended sentencing order and redated and re-signed it. So right. does the force of your argument hinge on the word amended sentencing order? Is I that think that is 
a, a big part of it, but I think it, it must be taken in its totality, that it is an amended sentencing order, and the judge resigns and redates that. And pursuant to Rule 1-1, again, it shall be the date that the dates of the entry of the final judgment shall be the date it is signed by the judge. In this case, the judge signed this on September 15, 2017, when he made, when he created the amended final order in this case. When you enter an order correcting the Scrivener's error, and you're amending a prior order where the error appeared, wouldn't you normally put amended order on the Scrivener error order correction document? You may put it where you made the amendment, but I'm not sure when you... What do you mean they put it where you, put, where you have the amendment? So if, 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 there, if there was some place in the body of it, uh, again, I haven't looked at all orders that all trial courts have done, but if, you, if within the body you make it a change and you may initial it and say amend it, but in this particular case... So uh, let me see if I understand. I'm, I'm struggling to understand what you're saying, to be candid. So if I'm a circuit court judge and I see there's an obvious handwritten typo where 7 should be 8 or 8 should be 7 or whatever, it's obviously not substantive. I have to go to the order book and take my pen out and say, well, I can't enter a new order because someone's going to say that I've got a, fi- a new final order. But I write it out and, and then initial it and date it? No. It is an amended order if I were to do that. In this particular case, what the court did is they took the old sentencing order, or what I would call the old sentencing order. They took it, and, and my argument is they recast it by writing amended at the top of the sentencing order. What the court simply could have done, and perhaps the Commonwealth's argument may have been a little stronger, is they could have simply made the fix and wrote amended, amended date. It would have been a more difficult question, I think, for the appellant in this case. But that's not an amended order when a judge. Well, it, it is amended order, but it's it's not recasting the whole order. I, and I apologize for interrupting. No, go ahead. Um, it's not recasting the whole order. And again, that is just one of the pieces of the puzzle that we are putting together here. When you look at the order in its totality, looking at the order in its totality, I think it reasonable. I think justice demands that a, an appellant who seeks and goes to the court asking them to reconsider what they've done because they need to know what the date is. They need to know when their clock starts ticking. And the court goes and amends it and writes and signs it and writes a new date. I think it reasonable in this particular case. So in August 28, 2017, you and your client did not know that it wasn't August 28, 2018? You need someone to put you on notice of that? We, we knew on September, we knew what the court intended on September 15th. 2017 because the court corrected that. Otherwise, we would be guessing and presuming. Thank you, Justices. Would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021.
Good morning. May it please the Court and Lloyd on behalf of the Commonwealth. This Court should affirm the Court of Appeals' decision, finding that the August 28th order was the final order in this case, as it resolved all the questions before the Court. And the September 15th correction was merely that, a corrective order which related back to the date that the actions were taken by the Court. So looking first to that August 28th order, that order was the final order in this case because, as this Court said in Burrell, in criminal cases, orders that adjudicate guilt, that impose a sentence, and that remand the defendant to custody are the final orders in the case that leave no vital questions unanswered. And that's exactly what the August 28th order did here. It recognized that on August 1st, this defendant had previously been found guilty and imposed sentences on his convictions for abduction and assault on family member and imposed his conditions of probation, and it remanded him to custody. Now, of course, the twist here is that the judge made a literal Scribner's error. The judge, as the writer and signer of the order, literally wrote an 8 instead of a 7, a Scribner's error. And so the defendant's argument here is that that was a vital question that was unsettled. Of course, it's the Commonwealth's contention. It was unsettled in 2017 that it wasn't 2018. It's the Commonwealth's contention that it was fairly obvious when trial counsel was there at the time the sentence was pronounced that that was the date that the court took the action to finalize the case and from which the appeal deadlines under 5A6 began to run. And, of course, it's notable that under 5A6 the defendant could have, doesn't have to, but could have noted his appeal before the final order was entered and it would have been treated as filed the same day as the order was entered. And so the question before the court, I think, is whether it matters that the correction was done within the 21-day period after the entry of the order when the trial court had both the plenary power over the case still and the corrective power. That corrective power comes from 801, 428B, and is statutory, but this court has also held it's inherent in the counsel case. And that inherent and statutory power may be exercised at any time. So during those 21 days after the court has entered its final order, it has both types of jurisdiction over the case. However, it doesn't mean, as the defendant argues here, that because it's within those 21 days that the court is necessarily exercising its plenary power and, in his words, recasting or recreating a new final order. When this court, on page 18 of the joint appendix in its amended order, says that order amended to reflect date order was entered on August 28, 2017, and now it's that was that's very important in this case. Under Rule 1, orders are effective or entered as the date they are signed, not the day they are entered. And so this court here is making clear that it signed the order. The order was effective. This order that is a final order under this court's precedent on August 28, and therefore the appeal deadlines begin to run. I would have expected to see something, because, I mean, you would agree a court could enter an entirely new sentencing order, but that one would expect to see something like this supersedes or the previous order is vacated. I mean, some language to the effect to make clear that this is not just a scrivener's correction. I'm entering an entirely new order that displaces part order, and here it is. Agreed, Your Honor. And this court's decision in Super Fresh Foods really told circuit courts that you need to be very bold and really state that you are modifying, vacating, or suspending 
after a final order is entered in order for that to extend the 21-day jurisdiction. And so the final, final note I'd love to make for the court, of course, any more questions are welcome. The final note is, in this case, to afford this defendant the right to an appeal, this court does not need to rule for him here. And I would suggest to the court that you do not need to upset decades of precedent of your precedent about what constitutes a final order, about what the court's corrective jurisdiction is, and the extent and limits of that power. Because this defendant, of course, could ask for a delayed appeal under 19 321.1, and this court's decision would create a good record for him that his appeal was out of time. And he can also seek habeas relief. I mean, he has multiple options. Agreed. Um, to reinstate an appeal. That, that's correct. Um, and so, as, as the Court of Appeals stated in Zoo, which this court has cited favorably, the <coughs> court just can't take actions to extend somebody's right of appeal when they have these backstops, such as they have in this case. So I'm happy to entertain any more questions that the court has, but I would ask this court to affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals, find that the August 28th order was the final order in this case, and that the October 3 notice appeal was untimely. Thank you. You have 42 seconds. Thank you, Judge. Briefly, um, I will reiterate, when we're dealing with an with a, a appellant's appellate rights, it is a vital question. And the specific date and the actual date is critical. And so, therefore, the actual actions that the court took in this case was addressing a vital question, was recasting this particular order by the fact of their action. And to answer the justice's question, well, wouldn't they put in their vacate, be specific? The fact that they put in there was the final order, past tense. They re-signed it and redated it pursuant to Rule 1. My argument would be this is a new recast order. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Please call the next day. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com, and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.